Welcome. My name is David Hansen. I am the pastor of St. John Lutheran Church of Prairie Hill in Brenham, Texas, and you have indeed found my sermon podcast, but the voice that you will hear today is not mine. Our preacher today at St. John was Bishop Michael Reinhardt, Bishop of the Texas-Louisiana Gulf Coast Synod. If you want to hear more from Bishop Mike, you are welcome to visit his website at bishopmike.com. Thank you so much, Bishop Mike, for being our preacher and bringing us God's Word today. Well, good morning. morning. It's good to be with you this morning and a pleasure uh, to uh, be with the early service and to get to have an opportunity to talk at the uh, education hour in between as well, too, and to be with you today, too. I want to say thank you. Uh, for uh, your pastor, David, and for loaning your pastor to the rest of us as well, too. Um, you, know, he, you know he's all over the internet, don't you? Yeah, he's, yeah, of course you know. He's created quite a stir and, and is quite helpful in uh, training others and getting up to speed in these things as well, too. And it's really a delight uh, uh, to work with you, David. Thank you. It was also a delight to be here and to preach at David's wedding, the wedding of your pastor, last September, which was the last time that I was here among you and uh, quite a celebration as well. Well, it's been a tough week, uh, no question. Uh, A strange week in many ways, if you think about it. We had at the Boston Marathon an explosion that killed three people and left uh, numerous others injured as well. And then this kind of crazy manhunt that went on. And I don't know about you, but I was kind of glued to my... Uh, TV into my phone watching updates on this, just curious to see this thing unfold. Uh, you know how it is with tragedies in America. We, we have the tragedy, and then we have this kind of drama that unfolds afterwards, and then we have our, our interfaith prayer service, and then there's healing, and then we slowly kind of start to move on. And then, of course, we had this big explosion in this, the town of uh, West Texas, and we're still not sure what the body count is there. Um, And there are a lot of questions about uh, causes and so forth that have yet to be answered. And so it's kind of an unsettling, it was an unsettling week. And certainly more troubling for some than others, those who lost loved ones, very, very difficult. But in really, for all of us in America, it sets everybody a little bit on edge. And there's a temptation to succumb to a kind of Fear and anxiety that sets in where we expect to find an enemy around every corner. And yet we are not a people of fear. The Bible says that the Lord has not given us a a spirit of timidity, a spirit of fear. Instead, we are given a spirit of love and joy and compassion to enter the world. We are followers of the risen Christ who are called to live the resurrected life. We are an Easter people. How do you do that when there's this temptation to be afraid of the other? The disciples were also tempted by these very same things. In fact, even after Easter Sunday, on Easter afternoon and evening, we find them hiding. We find them hiding in an upper room with the doors locked. They, too, are locked behind doors. They've already encountered the empty tomb. They've heard rumors already of of people who have seen the risen Christ, and yet they are still locked behind doors 
of fear. They have been traumatized. They have seen their Lord, their master, their coach, their rabbi, their Messiah, brutally trodden underfoot by the powers that be, tortured and executed. And it is very possible, since they usually, when they executed a a Messiah, they would execute all the Messiah's disciples as well, too, on crosses right next to him. And so when, when James and John say, Lord, we want to be at your right and at your left. Jesus says, I don't think you quite understand what you're asking for here. (laughs) Instead, they're locked up in these doors of fear. They understand all too well the kinds of fears and anxieties that we ourselves can encounter when we have been traumatized. And yet, these same disciples then become apostles. They become global missionaries traveling the world, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. What transforms these scared disciples that are hiding behind their doors of fear into global missionaries that are willing to travel the world to tell the good news of Jesus, to be witnesses to the good news of Jesus to the whole world? Is it not an encounter with the risen Christ that ultimately transforms those locked doors of fear into new pathways of witnessing the good news of Jesus for the world. In the book of Acts, Jesus tells the disciples these words. Acts 1.8, he says, Wait here, just wait here in Jerusalem until you have been clothed with power from on high by the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Luke is the only one who records this thing taking place. In fact, the book of Acts is written by Luke. Luke is the only gospel writer who writes a sequel to the story, right? I mean, Matthew, Mark, and John all kind of end with the resurrection. But Luke writes another big book that tells us what happens to these disciples after the resurrection. How does the church then grow from this point? Because Mark ends his gospel story with they ran away in fear and told no one because they were bewildered and afraid. Luke, however, shows us how that fear gets transformed into joy, moving out and being witnesses. That the power of the Holy Spirit is ultimately given to us at Pentecost. That's what we're waiting for now. Easter is a 50-day season, and and we're moving towards Pentecost right now where, where the coming of the Spirit Uh, is celebrated, and the Spirit comes in order that we might be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, people of St. John, what does that mean for you? I'll talk a second about what it means for the disciples, but what does it mean for you to be called to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? Think about that for just a second. I'll come back to it. I'll tell you what it meant for the disciples, or at least what I think it meant for the disciples. To be witnesses in Jerusalem, Jerusalem is right here. I mean, Jerusalem was the city they were in when they heard this news. It is the city where Jesus was crucified. It's the big city. Most of Jesus' ministry happened in the countryside, but he ends up in Jerusalem where he is crucified. And he says, you will be my witnesses right here, right now in this place. Judea, then, is the countryside around the rest of 
the area outside of the big city of Jerusalem. So you'll be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and in the um, community outside and in Samaria. Where was Samaria? Samaria is the area north of Judea. And you'll remember from the story of the Good Samaritan that the Jews didn't much care for the Samaritans. They had intermarried with other races and religions and they called them dogs and you weren't supposed to talk to them and you weren't supposed to touch them and you weren't supposed to even make eye contact with them. It was very hard for someone to even travel if they were an Orthodox Jew through Samaria without becoming unclean in some way, shape, or form, violating some law. And yet isn't it interesting that Jesus always goes through Samaria in the Gospels. Something we sometimes don't notice when we're reading the Bible quickly is that Jesus is doing kind of an amazing thing. You remember, he sat down with a woman at the well, at that well in Sychar, which is in Samaria, and he talks with her. He talks with a woman, not supposed to do, a divorcee, a, a, a Samaritan. And Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero in, in his parable. That the, the people who should stop and help the stranger, the people who should stop and love the other, are the very people who don't stop. And it's instead this Samaritan. And he's doing this in response to the question, after he said you should love your neighbor, that the most important thing is to love God and love neighbor. And the guy says, yeah, but who's my neighbor? I mean, who do I have to love? Who do I really have to love? Are the people in my church? Or the people that live next door to me? How about the rest of the neighborhood? What if they live in the neighboring neighborhood? Do I have to love them too? Or what if they're from a different race or religion? Do I have to love them too? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And then finally he says, so... Who's a neighbor? And the guy has to say, the Samaritan. He forces the guy to admit that the Samaritan is the neighbor. And Jesus says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and in Samaria. They are called to be witnesses even amongst these people that they don't like over here. And then finally to the ends of the earth. And I think that for the disciples that meant... That meant the the whole Roman Empire. Now, back to the question I asked before. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for you, St. John's Lutheran Church, to be called to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? Well, let's speculate. Let's just say that Brenham is your Jerusalem. You're called to be witnesses right here in Brenham. You're you're called to be witnesses right here in this congregation. You're called to pass on the faith in your family and in your church family and and, in in the community of Brenham, if you will. That uh, is my, the, the first pastor I worked with in my first call always used to say, Michael, your family is your first ministry. So we're called to be witnesses to Jesus right here, right now in our own place. Then, in Judea, in the surrounding community, what does it mean to be witnesses in the surrounding community? The fact that you're building a community center says you're thinking about this a little bit. That's a fun thing. Let's start imagining. What does it mean for us to witness to the love and the power of the resurrected Christ in this community? What does it mean for us to be that beacon of light? And then third, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Ah, What's Samaria for you? I can't answer that question. That's one you're going to have to answer. Who are those people over there that you don't like so much? That you're called to witness to nevertheless? Houstonians? <laughs> those, those folks that are moving into the community, those newbies? You ain't from these parts. Um, immigrants? 
I, you know, I, we're, um, we're in the, um, interacting with uh, St. John's Belleville right now, who is in the call process, because uh, Dave and Jenny have uh, announced their retirement this summer. And uh, we, so we did a study of their zip code in Belleville and discovered the community had grown 20% between censuses. Um, but the Anglo community had actually declined, that it was actually mostly Latino that had come in. And so Pastor Don asked that uh, congregation a startling question. He said, so are you going to staff for the past or for the future? Who is Samaria? Who is God calling you outside of your comfort zone to serve, to witness to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And then the ends of the earth. I would call that global mission. Global mission is the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth are bigger than they've ever been because we have access because of communications and all kinds of stuff. And so what are you doing? I heard that you... 60 quilts, is that what I heard this morning? 60 quilts. That is a way of witnessing to the love of Jesus to the world. Because those quilts go to refugees who are ousted from their home and they arrive in a refugee camp and they get nothing and somebody hands them a quilt that you made. That's powerful stuff. Those go to AIDS victims who can't get warm, who just get the chills and so forth. I mean, you're serving the world in Jesus' name through a simple act of just creating a quilt that goes off to Lutheran World Relief, who is now trying to create 500,000 quilts this next year. Uh, some of you have created uh, uh, health kits that go to Lutheran World Relief, too, and, and some of you have given to malaria. And, and we're sending missionaries. Are you sponsoring a missionary? If you're not, think about sponsoring a missionary. How are you witnessing to the love of Jesus beyond your tribe, out in the world, global mission? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But what is it that you're carrying? What is the thing that you're witnessing to? What is this message that we've got to proclaim? I want to read to you um, a quote from Cardinal O'Malley's address at the um, interfaith prayer service because it just really struck me. Uh, they were such good words. Cardinal O'Malley, the, the, the Bishop of, of Boston, uh, and a, a Roman Catholic, a Franciscan, uh, said, quote, the Sermon on the Mount in many ways is the constitution of the people called to live a new life. Now, that was really good. The Sermon on the Mount is in many ways the constitution of the people who are called to live a new life. Jesus gives us a new way to deal with offenses. Reconciliation. Jesus gives us a new way to deal with violence. Nonviolence. Jesus gives us a new way to deal with money. Sharing and for providing for those in need. Jesus gives us a new way to deal with leadership by drawing upon the gift of every person, each one a child of God. The gospel that we're called to witness to, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is a, is a message of love and compassion. It is not a message of fear, because all too easily, fear and anger harden if we allow them to take hold of us into bitterness and hatred. And that is not the message of the gospel. That forgiveness uh, for us is not something we do for the other. It's not something we do for the perpetrator. It's something we do for ourselves. Forgiveness does not mean we don't hold people accountable. People get held accountable. I remember when the, the uh, assassin tried to assassinate the Pope a few years ago, and then the Pope went and visited him in a Turkish jail, and, um, uh, um, and the Pope forgave him. 
But the Pope left and the guy stayed in jail. <laughs> you know, forgiveness does not mean there are not consequences for our behavior. Forgiveness simply means I am not going to allow my own hurt and woundedness and bitterness and anger to transform me into a bitter and angry person. I'm going to allow it to transform me into an even more loving, outwardly focused person in this world. That's the challenge of the gospel, that love actually requires more strength than hate, which means it's not easy. It's very hard work. Salvation is free, but discipleship is hard. It takes discipline. It's like training for, oh, a marathon. I trained for three marathons. And so I know. You don't just get up one morning and run 26.2 miles. And I think loving the way Jesus loved is not something you wake up one morning and are able to do. It is something that grows within us like a, a plant that is watered and fed regularly until that day when it really it's called to account. In training for a marathon, uh, I would run five to seven miles a day. And if you can't do that, you've got to build up to it. But you get to the point where you run five to seven miles a day for five days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then on Saturday, uh, you uh, run a long run. And, and each week, that long run gets longer and longer and longer and longer until you get up to about 20, 21 miles a couple of weeks before the marathon. And then you knock off for a while because your body needs rest. And every Sunday then, you don't run. This is the Galloway training method that I used. And um, on Sunday, you, you, you don't run at all because you've got to give your body a day to rest. Your body needs rest. The third commandment is not just some ridiculous commandment. It's the way our bodies work. We really do need rest physically, spiritually, emotionally. We need a day to just lay off. And if you train well, if you eat well, if you don't undertrain or overtrain, if you get enough sleep, then you get to that marathon and you are in shape and you are ready to go. And if you don't go out too fast or too slow, you'll do pretty good. You go out too fast, your muscles cramp up and you're going to burn out and you'll, you'll flop over before you get to the, the 20th mile. If, if, you, if you go too slow, then you just kind of, you, it takes longer and you're pounding your body a little bit too much and it's, it's, it's hard to get through it. You've got to get the right pace. And it's tempting because you get to the starting line and the gun goes off and everybody goes racing like it's a 100-yard dash. It's amazing. Like, aren't we all going 26 miles? Where are you guys going in such a big hurry? But if you keep your pace, you pay attention to your own pace, you will be passing them for the next 20 miles. You'll see them sitting alongside the road because they went out too fast. You've got to pay attention to your body. It takes focus and determination and and, and, and it's two races because you've got to run that 20 miles and then you've got to still be feeling good after 20 miles because then you've got 6.2 more miles to go. You've got to run a 10K. You've got a 20-mile race and then a 10K. And then if you're feeling good, you know what a 10K feels like because you've been doing it every, every day and then you take off and you finish that thing. But I'll tell you what, the, the hardest thing in the whole world was the last mile for me. Because you get to that last mile and your body is just spent. You can probably eat enough carbs for about 20 miles your body can't really absorb much more than that. And maybe you take some carbs along the way. They give little power drinks as you go to the run. But when you get that last mile, you've got nothing left. It shows you. You come to the limits of your humanity, of what you can really do. And, and, and if you're not careful, you'll hit the wall around 20, 21 miles. That's where the vultures are on the, on the road, side of the road waiting for people and the sag wagons. And, and uh, ask me how I know. 
<laughs> yeah, I ran three marathons, but I only finished two. Uh, because one of them, I, I, uh, I didn't train properly, and, and I hit the wall. And um, had to get on one of those wagons. Could not finish. After running 21 miles, I couldn't go the last 5.2 uh, because my muscles gave up. That's kind of, now, here's my question. What if we took the same amount of discipline that you would put into training for the Olympics or for a marathon into our Christian life, into the call that Christ has given us to be witnesses to the love of the risen Christ in this world? What if we took it that seriously? What if we really believed that this is a life and death matter? What, how would that change the way we prepare ourselves for Christian discipleship, for the work that God has called us to do in this world? What has God called you to do? Corporately as a congregation, but individually as a person. To what ministry has God called you? And how are you preparing for that ministry in your own life? How are you taking it seriously in such a way that you're preparing as if you were preparing for a marathon or for the Olympics? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that all the runners in the stadium compete, but only one receives the prize? Run to win. Run to win. And each competitor must exercise self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown. We do it to receive an imperishable crown. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Olympics. That's why he mentions the stadium. And that's why he mentions running. And later he'll, he'll mention boxing. He's talking about the Olympics. And in those days, you didn't get a medal. You got a, a laurel wreath. But he understands that it takes discipline. He's telling his followers in Corinth to train for their Christian discipleship like they're training for a race. He says... I subdue my body. I don't run uncertainly or box like one who hits only at air. Instead, I subdue my body and make it my slave so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be qualified. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God has called us to be witnesses to the good news of God, to be harbingers of hope and love to the world and to take that discipleship seriously. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, at times like this, it is so easy to cave into suspicion and paranoia and fear and anxiety. And we pray that you would help us to unlock those doors of fear and to step out boldly and bravely with great courage into the world to be proclaimers of hope. We pray that that fear may not harden into bitterness or hatred but that it might instead soften our hearts so that we might proclaim the love of the risen Christ to a world that desperately needs to hear it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.